Turn, please, to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're working through the book of Romans. It's going to take a while. We're moving pretty good right now, but uh, we're going to find some theological issues that will slow us down, be very profitable, but they will slow us down. And um, the section that we're in is an important section in the aspect that what we're talking about is the fact that all men, all men, are condemned before God. And all men need a Savior. And that's really all the way from Romans 1.18 and then the rest of that chapter talking about the horrendous and heinous sins of the Gentiles, sins that we see committed in our own country today and openly and blatantly at times committed in our own country today and even rejoiced in. I mean, you hear things every day. That just shock you, I'm sure. And uh, if you're not shocked, then we're being kind of either not watching the news, which is good, <laughs> or we're immune, <laughs> immune to what's happening. It's just, you know, and the foolishness that goes forward and uh, par- parades itself as um, intelligence. Well, this is not new. This has happened, and it's been happening, and it's there in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 2 takes us to the religious person. Nothing wrong with religion if it's the right religion. The religious person, the one that, uh, you know, um, has morals, has standards, believes in God or gods. Because religion is a broad term. It can mean a lot of things. Okay. And so this is the religious person, specifically uh, the, the Jewish person of Paul's day. That's where he's focusing in on, yet we ought to be able to see the principles that are therein that uh, really don't just uh, leave it at that. Have to do with anybody that considers themselves religious, and yet do not look to Jesus Christ alone uh, for their salvation. And so this is what Paul's talking about. And then, when we get to chapter 3, He'll tie it all together. And Lord willing, that'll be next week. We'll tie it all together. And then we'll begin the actual gospel, good news presentation. We're in the bad news right now, right? But remember we said that you have to know the bad news before there's good news. And so we're in the bad news section right now. It's an important message, needs to be understood. And um, really, look at it this way. If Romans is inspired by God, if we really believe what Romans says about the gospel, if the Apostle Paul is giving us the gospel, then it's not, it isn't going to matter how many religions there are in the world. It isn't going to matter how many philosophies there are. It isn't even going to matter what people think. What we're looking at is the Word of God. It is the Gospel. It's the only way of salvation. And the book of Romans is written just for that purpose. Think of a monk so many centuries ago, Martin Luther, who came to understand that, and it changed the world. Changed the world. That's the power of this particular book. Theological book, a book of salvation. So may the Lord bless as we go through it together. Just to remind us of where we were, take a look at chapter 2, 
verse 12, and then I'm going to read verse 16. And uh, I posited for you that verses 13 through 15 are a parenthesis. Um, I didn't come up with that. That's uh, generally considered to be true. Some translations actually show it as a parenthesis, which is interpretive, but I think it's correct. Uh, and others don't. But uh, you can see if you read verse 12 along with verse 16, you have a, a very good sentence that makes sense. Verse 12 of chapter 2. For as many as have sinned without law will perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So it really flows just like that. Talks about uh, what's happening. Talks about the judgment, the great judgment day. Uh, and, um, of course, um, how we will be judged. So... And then we should read the, the parentheses section too, uh, because it says, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God. And that, that's going to be very important to the section that we're in today. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. And then we have this uh, great, really theological truth here about um, men being made in the image of God and the fact that all people, and when I say men, do I have to say men and women? nowadays. No, we don't have to do that. Okay. You know what we mean, right? I, I would hope that you know what we mean. And um, besides, well, I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience, and there's the secret here, the conscience, also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And it really has to do with the second table of the law more than anything else. Uh, all men are worshipers. That's innately built within us. We, we find, though, without the, the Lord Jesus Christ, we worship the wrong things, uh, maybe even worshiping ourselves. But um, here, there's an innate understanding of right and wrong. I was listening to a, a, a talk show, um, and uh, people can call in, and this fellow was, was calling in with a, a horrendous situation that happened and asking, why would this happen? And uh, what it amounted to was his wife, um, with her bare hands, killed her 17-month-old baby. Okay, that's shocking. That is absolutely shocking. And he asked, why would that happen? What can you say? What can you say? You know, she's going to plead. She's in jail. She's going to plead insanity. Um, what can you say? Well, at least we can still be shocked. Maybe that's one thing that we can say. Uh, that's good about that. But it's a horrible, horrible thing that happened. No, there's a conscience that's built in. Now, we saw in Romans 1 that people are able to push that conscience down. They're able, they're able to make it such that they don't really have a conscience anymore. But let me tell you something. A person without a conscience is a very dangerous person. Very dangerous. Okay. Most people have a conscience, even if they pushed it down, even if they say certain things they know are wrong, are right, even if they think that way, 
there still is something there that they just innately know is wrong. And that's the small voice of God built into us that's conscience. It's not perfect. Uh, when Disney tells you to let your conscience be your guide, very bad advice, <laughs> okay? Your conscience can be very, very wrong and, and trained very badly. But if we have a conscience that's trained by the Word of God, if we have the Holy Spirit within, uh, then the voice of conscience speaks loudly to us, and we need to listen to that, because the Holy Spirit will use that. But conscience even exists in the lost, is what I'm trying to say. Now, we are in chapter 2, and we start new material here in, in verse 17. And I call this the religious moralist. The religious moralist, we'll see why. Chapter 2, verse 17, Indeed, Paul says, you're called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Well, what's wrong with all that? Yeah. Okay. Well, the people he's writing to, this Jew that Paul is speaking of, it's a hypothetical Jew, by the way. He's using a literary device here. And so he's saying, this is who you are. And you know what? The religious you're reading, they go, that's who I am. You nailed it, Paul. You know who I am. That's who I am. Just all those things that you just said. Well said. You got it right. But obviously, you know that Paul's setting them up. He's getting them to agree with the description so he can take the legs out from under him. Uh, Paul is the theoretical man. Paul knew exactly what this was like. He knew exactly what it was to think this way because before the Lord came, that's the way he thought. He was very religious. He was very moralistic. He sought to serve God as he felt God wanted to be served. Verse 17 talks about boasting. Okay. Indeed, you're called a Jew and rest on the law. That rest means you rely upon it, uh, you, you care about it, uh, you find your peace in it. Indeed, you're called a Jew and you rest on the law, rely on the law, and make your boast in God. And if we're going to boast, that's the way to boast, isn't it? To make you boast in God. Psalm 44, 8, in God we boast all day long. Psalm 34, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Uh, these are, are basically good things. But boasting is almost always negative in the Bible. Almost always. In fact, as I did a little study on it, I found that uh, boasting is mentioned twice as many times, a little bit more than twice as many times, in the New Testament than in the Old, which I found somewhat surprising. Looked a little deeper, and then I found out why that was true. Paul loves to talk about boasting. <laughs> he loves to talk about it, and it's almost always negative. Talking about men boasting in themselves and boasting for the wrong reasons. Paul knew what it was like to boast in the wrong things. He knew what it was like to feel superior to others who he could consider ignorant. He knew what it was like to boast about his own morality and law-keeping. But you know what? When the Lord Jesus Christ confronted him on the Damascus Road, and Paul had to fall to his knees 
and say, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord revealed himself to Paul. Boasting was gone. No more boasting. Well, we should equate this hypothetical Jew, if we want to really get to the meat of it, and the Bible was written to the Romans, and it was written for that day, but it's also applicable to today and still powerful for today and still has a message for today. We really need to see this more in the light of, of not just the, the Jew or the hypothetical Jew here, but we need to see it in light of the moralist and the religious person. Uh, we could spread it out to false religions and such like that. But basically, uh, because Christianity comes from Judaism, I think we're probably best inclined uh, to uh, really compare it to, for instance, cults. Cult, cults and, and cults by definition, like Jehovah Witness, Mormons, uh, Christian Science, things like that. You know, okay, that'd be that. Uh, Roman Catholicism would fall into this category. Liberal Protestantism would fall into this category. Um, in the 10 minutes I was listening to this particular broadcast, it was kind of interesting because this guy called up. It was, it was a religious broadcast. And that, that was why he was asking, what did God have to say about um, uh, this issue of the 17-month-old baby? This person called up and said, um, I haven't gone to church in 10 years. Okay, I've gone to church 10 years. I was raised Roman Catholic. I then became Lutheran. And then I became an elder in a Presbyterian church. That was his journey. And now for 10 years, he hasn't gone anywhere. And his question was, am I sinning? <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'd say um, there's a man that needs a savior, for sure. <laughs> you know. But uh, at any rate... Um, we should be thinking about those that are in these particular categories now. They consider themselves fine. They consider themselves right. They're moralists. This Jewish moralist was confident that he was right with God. He had the law. Not because he perfectly obeyed it, but he heard it and he knew it. Okay. Jeffrey Wilson, I put it on your outline. Jeffrey Wilson notes, the Jew bore his name proudly, for it was the theocratic title of honor which marked him out as a member of the chosen race. He rested upon the law, confident that his salvation was assured by the mere possession of it. Worst of all, in boasting that his nation was the sole recipient of the divine favor, he transferred to himself the glory that belonged to God alone. That was too good a quote not to put it on your outline there. And uh, I think Jeffrey Wilson hit the nail on the head. I believe he actually wrote that one. He quotes uh, old, old guys mostly, but I think that was his. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things I delight and we need to remind ourselves again and again that the law was never given to put us at ease 
or to make us satisfied with our performance. The only way a person can use the law like that is to deceive themselves. Deceive themselves. And Paul admits he was very, very deceived in his lost condition, thinking that he was pleasing God and doing the right thing. You know, in the scriptures, the, maybe the, one of the best illustrations of this is one that you know very, very well. Christ uh, talking to the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler comes to him and says, um, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Christ takes him to the law and uh, doesn't quote them all, but, but quotes, begins to quote the law to him. And the rich man, very sincerely, no doubt about it. I mean, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Very sincerely says, I've kept all this from my youth up. And then very insightfully says, what yet do I lack? Now that was very insightful. I, I can't tell you the rich young ruler ever came to Christ. But when somebody talks like that, it's hopeful that the Lord's working in their heart. And he was talking to the Lord face to face. Okay, so he says, what yet do I lack? He knew he lacked something. And so the Lord confronts him, not uh, so much with his moral, ah, you're not really as moral as you think you are. Christ could have done that. But Christ confronts him in an interesting way. He says, oh, okay, then sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And he goes away sorrowful. And what had Christ done? Christ had actually shown that moral man that he wasn't as moral as he thought. He was an idol worshiper, loved his riches, and he was covetous, wouldn't give them up. Okay? That, that was the, the case that, that Christ was able to discern and pin upon that young man. When I say an idolatry, I say, well, why is an idolatry? The very next thing that Christ talks about is how hard it is for a rich man to enter heaven. Because it's covetousness and it's idolatry. That's why. So it would appear to be losing instead of gaining, you know. And I'm sorry to say, and this is not new. This, this, has been, this happened in New Testament days and still continues today. There are people that use the scriptures, use the office of pastor, uh, use uh, their position as a religious leader or teacher to enrich themselves. They do. They, they enrich themselves. And um, that's not what it's about. I've said it many times. We'll say it again. There's only one reason that you pay a pastor a salary. Not to make him rich. It's so that he can live and live of the gospel and uh, not have to beg, not have to be poor, not have to be in, in destitute situations wondering where his next meal is going to come from and can he provide for his family. No, no, that, that, that should not happen. Okay. And we need to pray for pastors of, of very small churches that are bivocational. Um, that's difficult on a man to be bivocational. What I mean by that? He, he has to have a part-time or full-time job and uh, then carry on the work of the ministry. Uh, my friends, there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> you know? And uh, you can be Superman for a while, but you can't be Superman forever. You know? There's only so many, much that you can do. 
and only so much that can be done. So uh, the ideal thing, I, I have a world of respect for men that are bivocational because to me they're proving that they really, really do care. They're not in it for the money, you know. And I had to be bivocational uh, myself for, for a number of years in the 80s, you know, so I understand what it's like, you know. And so it, anyway, uh, we, we have a great deal of respect for those men that are willing to do that but a church should, should um, provide for her ministers. Well, anyway, I don't want to go too far into the weeds here. But let's remember that Paul was an expert in the law, an expert in all things Jewish. And this section is a theoretical challenge to a devout Jew, a man much like Paul before his conversion. You know, a Gentile who doesn't have an understanding of the Old Testament uh, this section really might be difficult to understand. And um, I, I think the Romans probably understood it maybe a little bit better because uh, their Bible was the Old Testament. That's the Bible they used was the Old Testament. But uh, this can be a little difficult as you read through here and, and trying to discern what actually is being said. But the Jews were generally well taught in the Old Testament and uh, the Gentile converts in Rome probably understood it too. So we're trying to understand this, trying to work through it ourselves. The self-righteous Jew, verses 18 through 20, would say, I know God's will. Just look at verses 18 through 20 while I talk. I know God's will. I understand the law. I'm confident that I can be a teacher. I am a light to those who sit in darkness. The people who sat in darkness saw a great light. And what was the light they saw? Jesus Christ, the light of the world. He's where we be, need to be pointing people and uh, showing people. The light is Christ. Five rhetorical questions are found in verses 21 through 23. This is where Paul, uh, if they're happy with Paul for what he says that they are, uh, they're not happy any longer after reading these verses, because here they are. 21. You, therefore, who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Now, I don't have to explain a lot about that, do I? That's pretty self-evident. You know, what he's actually saying. You say, well, wait a minute, you know, this guy's moral. You know, uh, you teach and you don't do? What in the world is that? Well, that's hypocrisy is what it is. You steal? Well, I would never steal. Okay, well, even the smallest things. Adultery? Well, a religious person would never commit adultery, would they? <laughs> okay. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. We're all made of the same stuff. And anyone can fall. He that thinks he stands, be careful. Beware lest you fall. Okay? So, you know, religion and uh, immorality has gone along together for a long, long time. Robbing temples is a little harder. Okay, I'll admit, that's a little bit harder. Uh, some have equated it to Malachi 3.8. Will a man rob God, wherein if you rob me in tithes and offerings... 
I'm not so sure that's really what Paul's thinking of. In my opinion, it may be. Some commentators think so. Um, the reason I'm not so sure is because when Jesus chastised these very same religious people, he said, you pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin, these very small things, and make sure that you've done it properly and you've omitted the weightier things of the law, you know, justice and mercy and truth. And, and so I'm not so sure that's where Paul's coming from. Uh, Chrysostom said this, a quote here, way back, way back in the earliest days of the church, early days of the church, early centuries, it was strictly forbidden for the Jews to touch any of the treasures deposited in heathen temples because they would be defiled. But Paul claims here that the tyranny of greed has persuaded them to disregard the law at this point. So while we may not have any concrete examples of that being the case, um, it, it well could be true. And uh, it may even be linked to meat offered to idols. Um, in the Jewish mind, it could never be right to eat meat offered to idols. Uh, you see that throughout the New Testament as they talk about it. Uh, in Corinthians, amongst the Gentiles, uh, a little bit different thing. It, I've talked about is Christian liberty under certain circumstances. Uh, James doesn't talk about it that way. Revelation doesn't talk about it that way. Uh, meat offered to idols um, would be repugnant to the Jewish mindset. But it well could be to save a little money, put those things aside, and uh, we'll go ahead and, and do it in secret, even against our conscience. And you boast in God breaking his law. You trust in the law and you're a lawbreaker. You want to be saved by the very law that you break. You want to see yourself as perfect and clean, and yet God's standard of perfection proves differently. By the deeds of the law, no man will be justified. The law does not exist to justify us. The law exists to show us our sin. That's what the law is for. So look at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge, for whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And let's just remember, you can practice the same things without doing exactly the same thing. Okay? That's what we need to understand. You can practice the same things without actually doing the very same act. Good example, adultery, sexual immorality, or in the heart. Okay? There's a good example of that right there. Okay. So those are the five rhetorical questions that we look at. Now, blaspheming God, verse 24. Blaspheming God. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. <coughs> and then he goes on. But we'll stop right there. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles by you. How? How is the, how is the name of God blasphemed? Well, turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm not going to take too long. I could read the whole chapter. And it would explain a lot. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to key in on one verse and then maybe a couple verses around it just to give more context. But um, Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel was a prophet who wrote in exile. And the visions that he saw of the wickedness going on in Jerusalem were visions. 
he saw visions of the things that were happening. And it was, um, he was one of the early captives, I believe in the second wave, if I remember correctly. And then, um, of course, it became the final. The hammer came down and Jerusalem was overrun. The temple was destroyed. So Ezekiel writes in chapter 16, and in verse 27, let me find, okay, there it is. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, the Lord is saying, and diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. Let's go all the way back to verse 25 now. Let's see there's a little bit of a context here. Um, you built your high places at the head of every road and made your beauty to be aboard. You offered yourself to everyone who passed by and multiplied your acts of harlotry. You also committed harlotry with the Egyptians, your very fleshly neighbors, and increased your acts of harlotry to provoke me to anger. Read down to verse 28 uh, through 27. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you, diminished your allotment, and gave you up to the will of those who hate you, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You also played the harlot with the Assyrians, because you were insatiable indeed. You still were not satisfied. Moreover, you multiplied your harlotry, as uh, the land of the traitor, Chaldea, and, and it goes on. Okay, the whole chapter is an indictment like that. And he's not really talking about sexual sin. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about um, what uh, the, the people were doing and how they were going astray from the Lord and uh, giving themselves to idols and giving themselves to wrong. And um, there, it was so shocking because here they were the ones that knew the Lord. They were the ones that knew the true and living God. And they manifested themselves in all kinds of heinous sin. You know, and, uh, and adultery was part of it too. Sexual sin was part of it. But really it's talking more about idolatry than anything else. And only Israel knew the true and living God. And they blasphemed the Lord by allowing the heathen to equate their demonic gods, the demonic gods of the heathen, with the living and true God. And Pastor Ken showed that over and over again in the Judges series. And Judges is a good place where you do see that, where the people would turn to the very false gods that God would deliver them from, and then turn to those very gods and worship those very gods, which makes no sense. That's ridiculous if you think about it. But it's what they did. And in the mind of the heathen, Jehovah God, just another God. And when they went to war, it was the war of the gods. And so the heathen would look at it and say, okay, our God's going to fight against their God. We conquered Israel. We've enslaved them. Our God is stronger than their God. That's the way they looked at it. A war of the gods. And yet we know from the scriptures, the reason that Israel would lose the war is because they went after the false gods and they did the things that were wrong. God was punishing them God was chastising them. God was showing them that they needed him and to bring them back. But the heathen didn't understand that. The heathen just said, oh, I guess the God's not as mighty as we thought. 
you know, couldn't even deliver them from us. Our God's one. Well, the Philistines caused a lot of problems. We see that in verse 27. Caused a lot of the problems. And, um, and did so, actually, up until the time of David, a man after God's own heart comes on the scene. And so Israel begins to prosper. They prosper under David. And then Solomon comes. And they prosper under Solomon and become a great and mighty nation, maybe for a brief period of time, one of the most powerful nations on earth. One of the most powerful. But a very brief period of time. Solomon himself becomes an idolater. Idolater is spirit, idolatry is spiritual adultery. And God began to pick at the edges of Solomon's kingdom. A biblical wake-up call, if you will. Excuse me just a minute. <coughs> I love the weather right now. It doesn't love me. <laughs> okay, there you go. But it's beautiful out there, I tell you. God began to pick at the edges of Solomon's kingdom. And then God finally says, that's it. It's over for you, Solomon. It's over for you. Except for the sake of my servant David, you're not going to lose everything. For the sake of Solomon, they'd have lost everything. Yeah, they'd have lost everything for the sake of Solomon. But the Bible makes it very, very clear. For the sake of my servant David, I will not totally forsake. Well, that's why God didn't destroy Israel. The northern kingdoms broke covenant by abandoning the Davidic line. The northern tribes, the northern tribes were scattered throughout Assyria and then the entire Mediterranean. Judah remained because of God's covenant, the Davidic covenant with David. And there would be good times. There were good times in, in the southern kingdom. Um, the Hezekiah comes, Josiah comes. Uh, but each revival was short-lived, and uh, always they'd turn back to their spiritual adultery until finally the Babylonian captivity came. And basically God used that to get rid of overt spiritual adultery, to get rid of idolatry per se and false gods. But then they took even the truth and twisted it. And, and Paul is that talking to the person that's doing exactly that, who had so much of the truth, but then twisted. By the time of Christ, um, the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was rebuilt. But in 167 AD, uh, approximately, it's not in the Bible, it's intertestamental history, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes came and... Um, desecrated the temple by doing something that was so unthinkable it's almost unbelievable that he would take a pig you know what the Jews think about pigs right? took a pig and sacrificed a pig to Zeus in the temple well that's about as outrageous as you could do to a Jewish person so what did they do? they rose up that, that motivated them and the next thing you know, the, uh, the Maccabees were, were there. The hammer was coming down. 
and the temple was cleansed. And eventually, in God's providence, Rome came. Now, Rome, for the most part, was tolerant. They let the Jews worship according to their own ways. In fact, they helped to rebuild the temple and make it much larger and much more glorious and much more ornate than it had been. A glorious temple that Messiah could come into. But it was a temple that couldn't be compared to the real temple, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Rome allowed the Jews to worship, but um, there's always a price to pay, right? They got to choose the high priest. And they did choose the high priest. And they'd set one up and they'd set one down according to their own purposes, one of the ways they controlled the people. In fact, Ananias and Caiaphas that you read about, uh, who were instrumental in crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, were actually set up by Rome. And uh, bribery was the way the priesthood was. was um, and of course, instead of being the descendants of Aaron like they were supposed to be, it was political. And then in 70 A.D., the very temple that the Romans had helped them to build, they destroyed it. Because there's a lesson to be learned there. Whatever Rome gives you, Rome can take away. And that's still true today. Whatever government gives you, government can take away. It's an important lesson to learn. Well, we conclude. Back to... Back to Romans. Let's, let's finish. It, it, it'll be quick because it's pretty self-explanatory. Verse 25. As it is written, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the, physic, the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, the book of Romans would have been read in one sitting uh, to the church. Okay. And if we just left it here without saying too much, you might think that, uh, hey, you know, it's the law that saves us. That's not what Paul's saying at all. That's going to be very, very obvious. The law, it, was never, it could never save anybody. It's not meant to save anybody. That's not the purpose of the law. But he's, using, he's zeroing in on circumcision here. Because circumcision was the mark of a Jew. Circumcision was what made him know in his mind that he was right with God. After all, haven't I been circumcised? You don't hear this too much anymore in America. But Matthew Henry said something very, very profound that was very true in his day. It used to be somewhat true in our day. But like I said, you just don't hear it much anymore. Look at verse 29, and let me read you what Matthew Henry did with it to make a point. Look at it in your Bibles, and this is what Matthew Henry said. 
He's not a Christian, that's one outwardly, nor is that baptism, which is outwardly in the flesh. But he's a Christian, that's one inwardly. And baptism is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. I thought that was pretty good. Now, I don't believe that we should equate uh, baptism with circumcision. I don't think that's really what we should be doing. We should be talking about the baptism of the spirit and the heart change that God makes. That's what we should be talking about. Matthew Henry's kind of doing that, but let's remember, he was a, a believer in infant baptism. And uh, he was basically pointing his direction to those that were in the Church of England that says, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I was baptized when I was a baby. That's exactly what he's pointing to. Like I said, I don't hear that too much anymore from people, you know. But it is something that religious people used to say. He's not a Christian that's one outwardly, nor is that baptism which is outwardly in the flesh. But he's a Christian that is one inwardly, and baptism is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Well said, I think. They were missing the point of what circumcision was to show. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Jeremiah 4, 4. Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. You men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of your evil doings. It's the heart. It's not a religious ceremony. And it's not surgery. It's the heart. It's the heart that matters. And Paul, writing to primarily a Gentile audience in Philippi. The, Philippi was a Roman colony. And about the time, it was, I can't prove this to you because uh, we just can't prove it. But about the time that the book of Philippians was written was when Rome was coming down hard on the Jewish people. And it, and it expelled a lot of the Jewish people from Rome. And Philippi being the, the main Roman colony, well, it could have been that there were very few Jews there too. But Paul writes to the Christian, for we are the circumcision, for we are the circumcision, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. And remember, that was written primarily to physically uncircumcised people. Well, some applications here. You know, the passage should dash all thoughts of religious people who reject Christ as he's freely given to us in the gospel and have chosen some other way of salvation. And Christian, guard yourself Christian, guard yourself from being one of those who can spot sin and failure in others while not removing the beam from your own eye. And Christian, comfort yourself that it's by God's grace you're in the faith. And the faith that you have, even if it's weak, is true faith. We really need to comfort ourselves that way. Because we can fall into the trap of trusting our faith. Faith is given by God. Faith is grown by God. 
If you have faith, that's his gift to you. Some qualitatively have more than others, but nobody has more of Jesus Christ than others. Okay, that's just the fact of the matter. Nobody has, no Christian has, has more of Jesus than any other Christian. Okay, but there are some that faith is weak and it's difficult for them. Well, comfort yourself that if you're in the faith, the faith that you have, even if it's weak faith, is true faith. And Christian, guard yourself from trusting in anything but Christ alone for salvation. Not your baptism, not your church membership, not anything but Christ alone. Those things are important. I just got through talking to families this week about baptism and church membership. Those things are important. Absolutely they are. But they're not salvation. They are not salvation. And just one more word to the lost. We would exhort you and beg you to quit trusting in anything else. Quit trusting in your morality. Quit trying to even clean yourself up. Don't even try to clean yourself up. Just come to Christ. Come to Christ. That's what you need to do. You need to bow before him. You need to call out to him. You need to ask him to save you. Don't try to clean yourself up before you come. Okay? That's just moralism. Come to Christ. The Holy Spirit will work in you. And the things will clean themselves up. You'd be surprised how that works. By God's grace and for his glory. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we know that no one that has ever humbly come to you for cleansing and salvation has ever been turned away, either because they were too dirty or because they're already clean. We know, Father, that we're all sinners. If there's anything that Romans 1, 18 through 3.20 teaches us is that we are all sinners condemned to die until the Lord Jesus Christ saves us by his blood and righteousness. We thank you for the blood and righteousness of Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the way that you work in hearts and lives. We thank you for being made new creatures if any man's in Christ. He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are made new. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells in us, Father, points us to Jesus Christ the Lord, who sits at the right hand of you, our Father in heaven. And because we know you, and because you first loved us, Father, we thank you that we can really rest assured and know that it was all of grace, it was all of mercy, it was all of you. Father, only true Christianity can say that. Every other form of Christianity depends on works of some sort. Oh, Father, we want to do good works, but we want to do them because they're right and good. But, Father, works will never save us. Only the work that Christ did can save. So we look to him and look to him alone and help us to do exactly that. Help us to rely on you. Help us to rest in you. And may Jesus Christ receive the glory. In his name we pray. Amen.